All right. I am so glad to be with you guys this morning. It is a beautiful, gorgeous spring day after storm, which makes it even more beautiful and more amazing. Um, thank you for giving us the privilege of watching online and sharing your Easter experience with us today. Easter is a time of year when we look back on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happened this time of year, 2,000 years ago. And 40 days ago, we didn't know that we would all be doing shelter in place. We didn't know that we would be gathering in our homes. But we did decide 40 days ago to spend this 40 days praying for our community and praying for you. So we believe that even though everything seems to be falling apart, that God is still at work and that he wants you to be with us as you're watching online and that he has something special for you in his word. Every week we study the scriptures because we believe it speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so again, we consider it a privilege that you would join with us this morning. This morning, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. And we're calling the sermon this morning, There is More. There is more. I want to share a little bit about a story. And I just reread this story yesterday, but I read it several times uh, when my kids were younger. It's a fantasy story, a children's story called The Silver Chair. And in the story, The Silver Chair, we've got a boy and a girl and a strange creature called a marsh wiggle, and they're rescuing a lost prince. After many terrible adventures and many difficulties, they finally, they finally find this lost prince underground. And they find out that this lost prince has been hypnotized, if you will. He's been enchanted by a witch so that he has forgotten who he is. But they set him free from the silver chair that, that binds him and is making him forget who he is. And when they set him free from this chair, suddenly the witch comes back in. The witch discovers that the prince that she has captured is about to be set free. She takes some powder and throws it into a fire, and this has some sort of chemical, some sort of drug that begins once again hypnotizing the prince and everyone else there. They are in this underground kingdom where she has captured the prince, and she is trying to convince them that the world they know above the ground, under the sunlight, does not exist. And so she is drugging them. She's enchanting them. She's convincing them with both logic, but also uh, with this drug that is taking over their mind. She's convincing them that there is nothing more than this underground kingdom that they are trapped in. She's convincing them that there is nothing more than what they see all around them. And this story captures what many of us experience. We live in a world of what we can see and taste and smell. And often there are things in this world that make us woozy, that make us forget that there's even the possibility that there is more. Well, the scriptures tell us that there is indeed more. There is more than this world that we live in of death and pain. And we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15, three key points that the Apostle Paul is going to make that I think are helpful for us today. There is more than the secular age that we live in now. There is more than just disease and death. And finally, there is more than living for self. We all intuitively know there is more, but there are many things in this world that make it hard for us to remember. So let's look at the text together. Again, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 15, verse 1. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he had appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Those not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. Paul goes on throughout this chapter to make the case that if the resurrection is not real, if we don't have this hope of life after death, of a new creation and of new bodies, then everything that we preach and everything we talk about with Jesus is in vain. Yet the New Testament teaches, Paul teaches in this, what we understand to be one of the earliest letters of the New Testament, that there is more. That the resurrection of Jesus proves that there is more than this life that we know, more than the secular age we've been raised in, more than the disease and death we see all around us, and more than just living for ourselves. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at the text in more detail. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us and you meet us here. And God, I thank you for helping us even with the tech details. It seems like this was a morning that everything fell apart, and so... We pray that you would help us to get the message out and to communicate over the internet. Um, God, we thank you that you communicated uh, through Christ to us. And so we pray now that through your Holy Spirit, your word would make sense to us, that we would understand the world we live in and the God that you are and how you've come for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, three big ideas. There is more than the secular age we all know, and I'll define that a little bit for you, but just kind of the air we breathe, the, the idea of this world that, that we've been taught. There's also more than just disease and death, and then finally there is more than living for self. So the first thing I want us to think about is the reality that there is more than this secular age. There's more than just this secular age. I would highly recommend to you a book that I've been reading lately. Um, This book is called How Not to Be Secular, and it's reading Charles Taylor. It's a summary of the work of modern philosopher Charles Taylor, who wrote a book about 10 years ago on the secular age. I want to recommend that book to you, but one of the major ideas that Taylor teaches us is that we live in an age where, where not only have we decided 
that we can no longer assume anything. We have to start with the idea of doubt or skepticism and things have to be proven scientifically. But that kind of scientific worldview that says the things that we can see, taste, touch, and measure are all there is, that worldview of, of scientific measuring only, that worldview has now worked its way into our art and our culture. So that now it's kind of begun to take over our imagination. So not only are we taught scientifically to use empirical data and only to believe in what we can see or touch, but we've also been taught this in our stories. And so it's harder and harder to imagine even that there's more than the world we can see, taste, and touch. So this secular age is not only an age in which the scientific method is lifted up as really a philosophy for all of life, but it's worked its way into our art and our literature. It's, it's infected our imagination. And so kind of like the witch in the story of the silver chair, we have songs and we have stories and we have ideas that make it harder and harder to us remember, to us, for us to remember that there's more than, than this world that we live in. That there's more than what we can see here and now. And in the Bible, the Bible agrees that we should look and taste and touch the Bible actually agrees that we should start with the world that we, should, that we can see. We start there, but then the Bible says there's other truth, there's other revelation that is broken in and helps us to interpret this world that we can see and taste and touch. There is more than just this secular age. And so the Bible communicates this in the idea of gospel and the idea of preaching. Two words that I think are so overused we forget what they mean. But the word preach means to proclaim something. It's uh, from the ancient world idea of a herald, of news being brought from another place. We forget how difficult this was in the ancient world because we live in an information age. We live in an age where we can get global news uh, immediately from all over the world. Well, in the ancient world, news had to come from another place uh, with someone who literally ran or, or you know, rode a horse into town to bring that news. And so that is what preaching means. Preaching means proclaiming something, some fact, some news, some insight that you wouldn't have already known unless the person carrying the message brought it to you. So Paul is saying you wouldn't have known this unless Jesus came to tell us and then now we are coming to tell you. And that's what we're doing right now. We're proclaiming, we're preaching this message as news bringers, as heralds, as those who bring news from town to town. And so that's an important word for us to understand. I think sometimes we associate years and years of Christian history in the West with the word preaching, and we forget that it merely means to proclaim something you wouldn't have known otherwise. That's the idea there is there is more than just this secular age we live in. There is more than this scientific bubble. There is other news that we need to hear. And then he gets more specific with the word gospel. He talks about this gospel that was proclaimed, this good news, this message that he proclaimed to them. And what that means is that there is good news that something has already been accomplished. And here he's going to define the word for us. So here's the good news. Here's the word that he preached. Verse 1, he says, the gospel I preached. Verse 2, he says, the word I preached. And he says, this is what you believe and this is what saves you. So verse 3 says, I delivered to you as of first importance. 
what I also received. So he received it as good news. He received it as proclamation and preaching that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on in kind of a a long uh, extra paragraph there talking about all the appearances of Christ. So Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's what we most often talk about as the epicenter, as the crux, if you will, of the good news of the gospel, the cross story, that Jesus died on the cross to take our sins and to give us his perfect righteousness. So when you trust in Christ, you're trusting that he's your substitute. And that's what we're invited to trust in. That's what we're invited to believe. And he says this is of first importance. But he also says part of that good news was not just that he died according to the ancient scriptures, according to the prophecies, but that he was buried and that he was raised. He was raised from the third day, again, according to those ancient prophecies, that death could no longer hold him. And so what Paul is reminding us is that the gospel, the good news that we proclaim is not just about Jesus dying for us, which is very important, but it's also about Jesus rising for us. And that's what we remember on Easter. Easter is the, the yearly memorial of remembering that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection means death could not hold him because of what Hebrews describes as the power of an indestructible life. And so Paul explains what Christianity has always said, that this is not just an idea floating in space, but this is something that can be then empirically tested and verified. It can have the uh, tools of science and journalism and history applied to it because he says he appeared to people. People saw him. People met with him. People touched him. People interacted with him. And so once again here, faith is not the utter rejection of the scientific method. Faith is not the utter rejection of empirical methods where we rely on our senses to see and smell and taste and touch. Paul is saying, no, Christ did appear to people. They saw him. Here are all the people that he appeared to. And this, at this time when this was written, you could still go ask those people. You could still go talk to them. And so Christianity doesn't utterly reject the scientific method. What Christianity says is that's just not all there is. It says start there and you'll receive this message that has come in from the outside, reminding us that, again, there is more. So when we think of good news proclaimed from the outside, I want to remind you of something that happened in Texas history right after the Civil War. Uh, There's a celebration that's celebrated among many in the black community called Juneteenth. Juneteenth. Have you ever heard of Juneteenth? It's on uh, June 19th. June 19th or 16th? Oh, no. What is it? 19th. Okay, June 19th. I didn't write that part in my notes. Um, And so Juneteenth is when the announcement of freedom for slaves finally made it to Texas. It was announced by a Union General in Galveston, and that is the day that they celebrate their freedom. But you know what? Abraham Lincoln granted that freedom all the way back in January of the same year. So you got a six-month gap between when the freedom was granted and when the freedom was proclaimed. And so that is something that we experience as well. Juneteenth is then a celebration of freedom being known, this message of freedom being proclaimed and received. And so as Christians, we celebrate that we also have a message of freedom, not only being granted, but being proclaimed to us. And so I want to challenge you to recognize that we live in a culture that says, no, there there can be no messages from the outside. There can be no proclamation of something outside this 
imminent, close frame of what we can see and taste and touch, I want to challenge you to doubt your doubts. I want to challenge you to investigate, to see that there is more, that there is more than just the secular age that we've been trained, again, not just trained by the rules of science, but we've been trained now by our art and literature to say, it's ridiculous to even think about God existing. I want to challenge you to to see that there really is more. Uh, There's an atheistic author, Julian Barnes, and he describes the secular age in a book called Nothing to be Frightened of. And he says it this way, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I think that's a good first step to recognize that even though our art and our literature and our science and everything in the secular age teaches us that God is not there, to recognize that we are haunted that something in us knows that he really is there, to, to start by missing him. Do you miss him? Do you, do you recognize that, that something's missing? He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Allow yourself to miss him and consider how would he speak to us if he was allowed to? You see, our secular age has taught us, he's not allowed to. No, 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 no. There's nothing outside of this room. You can't listen. How would he speak to us? if he was allowed to. And then I want to encourage you, second application. So first application is, is imagine that he's there. Miss him. How would he speak to you if he, was could, if he could? Second application is this. Don't be lazy. Investigate. Don't be lazy. Investigate. Uh, our secular age, think about this, our secular age offers more comforts and distractions than any time in history. Than any time in history. We have more diverse ways to put ourselves to sleep, to numb ourselves from the pain, to enjoy our life in our individual, authentic, true-to-ourself ways. We have more of those options than, than ever in the history of the world. So take the time to maybe separate from your distractions, from the tools you use to numb yourself. Maybe separate from those for just enough time to investigate and ask good questions. Don't be lazy, but begin to ask, is God there? How would he speak to me? Where is he? I challenge you to read the Gospels. I challenge you to read good apologetics. Apologetics is is merely the science of studying the reasons for our faith. There are reasons. Um, And I think there's a one-two punch that is really important for us in the secular age to recognize that we want to just read the stories of Jesus, get to know Jesus as a person, But we also want to think about the reasons for faith and why faith is not completely anti-reasonable. Great book that I would recommend in this vein of what we call apologetics or the reasons for the faith is a book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. I highly recommend you purchasing this book, reading this book, or listening to sermons that he's done based on this book. The Reason for God by Timothy Keller, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And then again, the book I mentioned before by James K.A. Smith, How Not to Be Secular, It's about reading Charles Taylor, this modern philosopher that talks about our secular age. Encourage you to to investigate more thoroughly, not to be lazy, to doubt your doubts, and to imagine how would God speak to me if I allowed him to, if he was really there. The next point I want us to see is that there is more than disease and death. There is more than disease and death. And we'll see this in verses 12 through 19. In verses 12 through 19, uh, we see here, the repetition of the word death or dead multiple times in this text. So let me read again, starting in verse 12. It says, Now if 
Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So stopping there for just a second, they believe that there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. It's not possible, right? So they had a similarity to our culture where they just thought, yeah, there's, there's nothing beyond this world. That's just the way it is. And so we don't know exactly how this worked its way out in a community of believers in Christ, but somehow they were, some of them saying, maybe Christ rose from the dead, but there's not really resurrection from the dead for everybody else. And here, what we're seeing is Paul saying, no, those things are tied together. The whole point, the whole point of Jesus rising from the dead is to free us from this world we know of disease and death. So there is more than disease and death. Verse 14, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. That means it's pointless. It's empty. What he's saying here is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything we do is just a dumb hobby. It doesn't make any sense at all. And I believe in this secular age, we're seeing more and more of a divide of people who used to like Jesus just because he had some nice stories, but they didn't really believe in the resurrection of the dead. And more and more of that kind of faith is dissolving, is disintegrating. It's part of the polarizing that we see in our culture right now. More and more people either believe absolutely in the resurrection of Jesus or they think Christianity is stupid. There's less and less of the middle ground in our society where people think, oh, it kind of makes sense to go to church even though I don't believe it all. Paul says, no, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to follow Jesus unless you believe he's actually defeated death once and for all. And so he goes on, he says in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. He's like, if there's no possibility of resurrection, then we're misrepresenting God, then we're We're liars. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He's connecting it with forgiveness of sins. So somehow, again, we don't understand exactly what the Corinthians were thinking, but somehow they thought they could have forgiveness of sins, even though there was no hope of resurrection from death. And Paul is saying, no, it's all tied together. Sin is what kills us. Sin is what has brought death and disease into the world. And so he's saying, no, our hope is actually that there is something beyond sin and death. Verse Verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are most of all people to be pitied. He's saying we should feel sad for ourselves, that we only have hope in this life. We only have hope in this life, and that's how many of us live. Again, that's how many of us have been taught to live in this secular age, but I think right now, God has really given us a gift, and we want to be careful about this. We don't want to call bad things good and good things bad, but we know biblically that God can work through bad things, that when bad things can happen, this is an opportunity for us to wake up. It's an opportunity for us to wake up from our distractions. And so right now, we're going through this worldwide pandemic that is just bizarre. It's just so weird. As I reach out to friends and talk to people, the the words I keep saying is, it's just weird, right? Like, my daily life is not miserable. Things are generally fine, but it's just so weird. Like, what is going on with our world right now? And when the things that we're used to get, get shaken up, when our routines get shattered, when the things we've relied on for security and stability get broken, that's an opportunity for us to recognize, hey, maybe, 
maybe there is more. I believe the coronavirus and really death and disease in general functions as a great equalizer. We all have to face death. Most of us just try not to think about it, right? Most of us just try to ignore it and imagine it's not really there or not think about it as much as possible. The coronavirus has kind of raised this front and center. So we're thinking about disease every day. We're thinking about death every day. Do you have hope that there is more? Or do you fall in the religion of our secular age, the mythos of our secular age that says you're so grown up that you recognize that life is meaningless? You're so grown up and mature, you're, you're willing to face the abyss. Well, again, I would challenge you that that's really something that you've been taught. That's something you've been brainwashed by in our secular age. Jesus says, it's good to be grown up, but it's also good to be like a child. Jesus says, it's good to be like a child, to humble yourself and recognize your need. And I want to challenge you, as important as it is for us to be responsible, adulting human beings, that we also want to be like a child before God and recognize our need of him. So, I grabbed another recent picture of the coronavirus spread. If you want to look at that on the screen, there's these red dots. This is, I think, John Hopkins' map that is kind of scary looking as it shows red dots spreading in major cities all over the United States. Um, This spread just kind of raises our awareness and our worry about the spread of sin and death in the the world. And I think it's a wake-up call. Going back to the book Julian Barnes wrote, um, what was the name of his book? Did I quote that book before? Let me check for you. It's called Nothing to be Frightened of. So Julian Barnes is this atheist author that said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. His book is called Nothing to be Frightened of. And he talks about the kind of nagging reality of death being a wake-up call for us. Have you ever been in a hotel room and someone else set the alarm and you weren't expecting it, and it goes off at some horrible early morning time, and you wake up in complete darkness in one of those thick, heavy, wonderful hotel beds, and you have no idea where you are, what's going on, right? He, he says that the reality of death is kind of like that in our lives. We kind of cruise along, not thinking about it, and then all of a sudden something reminds us that it's there. Something about it reminds us and wakes us up. Barnes says it this way, It's like being in an unfamiliar hotel room where the alarm clock has been left on the previous occupant's setting. Suddenly, you are pitched from sleep into darkness, panic, and a vicious awareness that this is a rented world. Suddenly, we're reminded, this is a rented world. There's got to be more. There's more than what we can see, taste, and touch. Um, as we think about how to re- uh, apply this reality that the resurrection gives us hope beyond disease and death, I want to kind of reverse this. Oftentimes with the application of Scripture, I challenge you to do something because of what Scripture teaches us. What I want to think about here is kind of a, an anti-application, and what I want to show to you is what we're not doing if we don't believe in the resurrection. What are we going to not do if we don't believe in the resurrection? Um, if you live afraid of death because you have no hope of the resurrection, it's going to change the way you live. You see, historically, Christians are the ones that build hospitals and build orphanages 
and build schools and intercede on behalf of the weak and those who don't have power and risk their lives in crazy ways because Christians believe in the resurrection and hope of life after death. But if you don't believe in the hope of the resurrection, I think two things are going to control your life. One, you're going to obsess over staying alive. Or two, you're going to obsess over staying comfortable and distracted. Think about that. Most people that have no hope in the resurrection, they either obsess over how they can stay alive, be healthy, extend their life, or they obsess over how they can be comfortable so they don't have to think about it. They obsess over how they can distract themselves. And again, we live in this world of unparalleled distractions and comforts more than we've ever seen before, which are hypnotizing us, which are telling us not to think about a world outside the world that we know here and now. So I want to challenge you to believe in the resurrection so you can stop obsessing over staying alive. You can stop worrying about disease and death. You can know, you can have confidence that there is more and this will lead you then to make a difference in society. And this leads us to our last point. Our last point is that there is more than living for self. There's more than living for self. I'm going to read verse 20 through verse 34. I'm not going to comment verse by verse on everything here, but what I want you to see is the big idea that as human beings, it's our job to conquer sin and death and brokenness in that world. That's what we're made for. We're made to make this world a better place, and yet we've all failed to do that. And so the big story of Jesus is that he's the one that actually did conquer, and that's what the resurrection is all about that he's leading us in this conquering. What Adam and Eve failed to do, what we failed to do, Jesus was victorious. And so I'm going to read verses 20 through 34, thinking about this idea that there's more than living for yourself. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the firstfruits then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Here's this picture of Jesus conquering all and then giving the kingdom to his Father. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This is one of those confusing verses in scripture. We're not really sure exactly what it means. One idea is that people were baptized for someone else who died before they had the opportunity to be baptized. That's one idea. It's strange that Paul didn't comment on it because clearly he didn't like that sort of thing going on. The other idea is that really it just means being baptized on behalf of their dead bodies. He's saying, well, why are we even baptized at all then? Really, he's talking about our regular practice of baptism. Why why would people be baptized on behalf of their dead bodies? Because they have hope that our bodies will be raised from the dead. 
And so that's in verse 29, verse 30. He says, why are we in danger every hour? He's talking about the apostles, the preachers, the proclaimers of this message. Why are we in danger every hour? Like, why, why do we risk this? He's saying in verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Paul's saying, why would we take these risks if there was no hope in the resurrection? Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's not talking, we don't think, based on the way this kind of phrase was used in the culture at the time of physically fighting wild beasts like a gladiator, because it was so commonly used in this way and philosophical literature. Most people think what he means when he talks about fighting wild beasts is dealing with the wild beasts of our own self-control issues. He's saying, why would I fight wild beasts and try to be holy? Why would I stop living for just distraction and comfort and instead try to live a holy and pure life if the dead are not raised? Paul's talking about learning to stop living for ourselves because he says the alternative is if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's saying that, that's all there is, is if the dead are not raised. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. If you know the book of 1 Corinthians, you know they had some serious moral issues. So Paul is connecting the thread back to, if you struggle to live a morally pure life, it's because you've put all your hope in the pleasure that you're pursuing right now. But Paul says, if you believe in the resurrection, that'll give, a, give you a hope outside of yourself. You're, you're then no longer going to just live for self, but you're going to begin to be able to live for others. And then he finishes in verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And here we finish with this idea that Paul brings to the Corinthian church that it's possible to say that you believe in Jesus. It's possible to have had some kind of religious experience, but really have no knowledge of God. Really not know him at all. And what Christianity teaches is if Jesus has really gripped your heart, then it's going to change the way that you live. This doesn't mean we're saved by living a perfect life. What this means is we're saved by Jesus. And if we truly trust in him, if we truly believe in him, if we truly believe in the resurrection hope of life after death, then we will bit by bit, stumbling at times, turn our lives over to him more and more every day. We will trust that he has changed everything and it'll allow us then to stop living for self. I grabbed a picture of someone in uh, the gladiator Uh, arena, fighting wild beasts, again, to highlight that in the first century, yes, they had gladiator events where they fought actual beasts, but this phrase was repeatedly used to illustrate fighting the beasts of sin and selfishness in our own lives. And so I want to ask you this by way of application. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe you have hope of life after death? If so, then you will fight the wild beasts of sin and selfishness in your life. You will fight the wild beasts of living for self. And here's some basic ways to do this. We've been in a prayer series where we've talked about praying. Try praying. That's the first step to fighting the wild beasts. Coming to God like a little child and saying, I need help fighting these beasts. They're more than I can handle. You pray and you call out to God. Practice praying the Lord's Prayer or Psalm 23 where we remember that God is a good shepherd. 
And then also practice just talking to God as if he's a father that loves you. I'd also challenge you to fight wild beasts of sin and selfishness in your life by reading the scriptures. And here's something that's really helpful. A lot of times people say, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Um, I just want to encourage you not to start that way. Start with the easy books, okay? Because the Bible is not just one book, it's 66 books. So what you're saying is, I'm just going to read a library, okay? That's a good and lofty goal. Someday, yes, but maybe not today, okay? Maybe you don't want to read the entire library today. Maybe start with the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark or 1 Corinthians as we enter into a series here over the next several weeks on 1 Corinthians. Start with something small that you can focus on. Look at the life of Jesus and begin to let those stories wash over your soul and your imagination. And then finally, another way to, to fight the wild beasts of sin and selfishness in your own life and stop living for self is to serve. The coronavirus and the shelter in place has given us an incredible opportunity to serve others. Now, it's hard because a lot of us are isolated, right? So you don't feel like you can serve your neighbor as you would like to, but maybe you're trapped at home with your family. Maybe God is saying, in this time, I want you to learn in new and difficult ways to serve your family, to be a servant. What does it look like to be a servant? Jesus modeled for his disciples what it means to love other people. He said, this is leadership, and he stooped and he washed his disciples' feet. He did one of the dirtiest and most menial jobs of the first century, and he says, this is how you love one another. That's a great way to fight the wild beasts of living for self, is to serve those that God has placed around you. We can serve the broader community by sheltering in place. We can serve the broader community by donating blood. I think there will be opportunities to give, um, to serve by feeding those who are hungry. There will be other opportunities that will come up. But serve others. Help those who are in need. And that will be a real tangible way to fight the wild beasts and know and live out the reality that there's more than living for self. Well, I want to finish up. By going back to the story of the silver chair, um, the silver chair story is a great story, a lot of beautiful, um, just like insights into how people think, insights into this little boy and this little girl as they're trying to rescue people and they're bickering and the problems that they face. Just a fantastic story that I would highly recommend to you. It's a silver chair by C.S. Lewis. So when they're in this underground world trying to rescue this prince and the witch comes in, she begins hypnotizing them, she gets them to the point of denying that the world that they remember is even there. They start to say, there, there is no sun, there is no sun. And finally, in this last ditch effort, this Marshwiggle, this weird creature that's helping them, his name is Puddleglum, and he always seems kind of negative. In this last ditch effort, he becomes a hero. And the fire, the, the smoke is coming out of this fire that she's using as some kind of drug to hypnotize them. The marsh wiggle, Puddle Glum, he stamps out the fire, burns his feet. He makes a great sacrifice. The pain clears his head and stamping out the fire stops the drug's effect on the others as well. And it's a beautiful picture of a hero stepping in and sacrificing himself to rescue others. And every time I read that story, I think how, man, I want to be that guy, right? Like I want to be that hero. I want to sacrifice on behalf of of others. I want to break out of this hypnotizing enchantment where I'm forgetting that there is more than just the world that we know. But it reminded me as I was studying for this passage this week that the Bible again and again says, yeah, we, we should be those kinds of heroes, but Jesus is the ultimate hero. 
the only reason that we can be a hero at any level is because of the perfect and ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made by dying on the cross for our sins. And Paul ties all this together at the end of this passage of 1 Corinthians 15. He says that death is swallowed up in victory because of Jesus' resurrection. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. He says the mechanism by which death and sin has captured us is the law, saying this is right and this is wrong. And all of us have fallen outside of what is right and what is wrong. All of us have gotten trapped in these lies, these deceptions that we go through. Sin has taken over our hearts, but he says Jesus has broken through. Jesus has stamped out the fire by giving himself on the cross. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can have hope at Easter that there is more. There's more than the secular age we live in, more than the songs and stories of our culture. There is more than the disease and death that we worry about but try to avoid. And there is more than merely living for self because Jesus proved that there is more by rising from the dead. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you love us and we thank you that you gave yourself for us in Jesus. We pray that you would continue to transform us, that you'd continue to make us new. We thank you for resurrection hope. We thank you also for the simple gifts of sunshine on a spring day. God, help us to live for you, to live for others, because we know there is more, because you've proved it to us by coming to rescue us. We pray all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.